Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to the chapel. My name is Dave, and I love my mom. And I love the mother of my children as well. So I think it's appropriate today that before we go any further, we just honor the mothers in this place. But would you just raise, rise to your feet? And all of you, just rise to your feet. We'll do that in a minute. Just rise to your feet. Moms, too. You guys can stand up, too. I know we're still receiving the offering. This is going to be a lot of juggling, but we can do it. Um, so the first thing I want to do is just show our appreciation to the moms by giving them a warm round of applause. Would we just say thanks to the moms? For their sacrifice and for their love and for all the balls that they have juggled and for all that we have put them through, we just appreciate them. Um, and now I invite you to remain standing for a minute and uh, let me just lead us in a Mother's Day prayer. Lord, as we gather on this morning, um, having, having worshipped you and reminded ourselves, Lord, what, uh, what is truly most important in life, we're just honored, Lord, that, that our country sets aside a day to honor motherhood. We, uh, we appreciate that and we affirm that, that uh, priority today. Lord, we do know, um, because we've, we've experienced some of the pains of life, we know that for some people, Mother's Day is a, a difficult and painful day for various reasons. And so I first pray for any woman who's in that position, Lord, that, that uh, maybe is not even here and is listening to my voice online because coming to church on Mother's Day is too painful. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to them and support them and show them that you have great things for them um, and that they are just as valuable as anyone. Well, Lord, mostly today we want to honor the mothers that are in our midst. And we thank you that when we look at the things that our mothers have done in our lives, um, we see reflections of you, Lord, of your, your unconditional love and your sacrifice and your wisdom. So many of those things we've seen in the mothers that have influenced us, so we thank you for that. I pray that today the moms that are in this room would feel respected and appreciated and just truly loved. And I pray for us, uh, those of us who have mothers, those of us who are married to mothers, Lord, that we would make it our business today um, to show extra respect and extra honor uh, to those mothers in our lives. Uh, Lord, may we say um, the things that, that are good and right and that, and that we know we want to say. May we not hold back um, to the moms in our life. I pray this would be, for every mother here, that this would be a truly beautiful day. And we commit ourselves to you now as we go forward, as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Well, there was a question that Jesus once asked his disciples, and it's really just as important today. The question is, who do you say that I am? And I think sometimes it's much easier for us to talk about uh, what other people say about Jesus. You know, the Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, um, but just one of many prophets. Um, Orthodox Jewish people believe that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, but certainly not their Messiah. My Aunt Linda thought Jesus was her good luck, good luck charm at Atlantic City every time she went down there, um, et cetera. It's easy to talk about other people, especially behind their backs, right? But ultimately, all of us has to take responsibility for our own lives, and we have to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? So the whole reason we're doing this series is to help you to do some of the intellectual and spiritual work to answer that question for yourself. And the way that we're doing that is by going to the seven places in the Gospel of John where Jesus described himself, beginning with the phrase, I am. So today we come to the place where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. Really interesting passage because this passage contains some of the most comforting words that Jesus ever spoke. Um, if you have been to a lot of funerals, you have probably heard these verses, some of these verses uh, recited because they just bring amazing comfort. At the same time, this passage contains some of the most challenging and potentially offensive things that Jesus ever said. So right, right in the same passage. So welcome to the chapel on Mother's Day where you will be comforted and offended. You ready? <laughs> but it's actually really important because if we want to come up with an honest assessment of Jesus, you can't just cherry pick the nice sweet stuff. We have a tendency to do that, right? To, to gravitate to the really nice sayings of Jesus, to avoid scary Jesus, right? Um, but, but in order to really take him seriously, you have to take everything he said, you have to look at who he really claimed to be. So it's an important passage, important one for us to, for us to study during this series. So let's look at the passage together. We're in John 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. So it begins with Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been, around, uh, been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is the word of God. So based on this passage today, uh, I want to talk about three things, and here they are. A comforting promise, a challenging claim, and a life-changing belief. All right, a comforting promise, a challenging claim, and a life-changing belief. So first, a comforting promise. Let me just set the context a little bit. This conversation happened at a very critical moment. This was Thursday night, the night before Good Friday. So you, you probably know the, the, the general picture of the story that previous Sunday, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem for his final time, Palm Sunday. And all through that final week, he had been warning his disciples that things were about to get rough, that he himself would be arrested, that he'd be beaten up, that ultimately he'd be crucified. And of course, hearing that, especially the part about losing Jesus, um, made the disciples feel confused and nervous and scared. So Thursday night now, he gathered the disciples together for the Last Supper. He knew the kind of stress that they were under, and he spoke directly to what they were feeling. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I had to kind of summarize what Jesus was saying here to his followers, here's how I'd say it. In the midst of chaos, Jesus promises a home. In the midst of chaotic things, Jesus promises a home. 
That's a really big deal for us humans because I believe that deep down inside, all of us has this longing for a home. I still remember the first time that I left home for an extended period of time. Um, I was starting my, my studies at, at Virginia Tech, and I showed up there in September, early September, wasn't scheduled to go home until Thanksgiving break, end of November. And so I, I mostly enjoyed that, that first fall that I had there, but there were times when I found myself just craving home. Um, like the time that I asked somebody, hey, can you tell me where the nearest diner is? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, oh, you mean like a truck stop? I said, no, not like a truck stop, like a diner where you can like order anything and the menu's, you know, 30 pages long, you know. He said, oh, you mean like Denny's? I'm like, no, not like Denny's. And I just found myself longing for North Jersey, you know? And it wasn't so much, honestly, the diners and, and the pizza and the bagels that I craved, although it was that. But it was deeper. It was just the sense of familiarity and comfort and belonging. Um, it, was a, it was homesickness. Can you relate to that feeling? Maybe some of you, was when you went away to college or when you went away to summer camp for the first time, or uh, maybe you, know, you enlisted in the military and you, you, know, you went into to basic training or something like that. Some of you right now, honestly, you're living here in North Jersey and, and, and this is not home. And you're longing for truck stops and Denny's or whatever you had back home, you know? Um, because this, this deep thing we have as, as humans, we have this longing for home. I realize also that for some of you, home has not been a happy thing in your life because you grew up in a home that was filled with arguing or it was an alcoholic home or uh, you know, your, your dad took off when you were young or something like that. Um, sometimes I counsel people like that. They came from very, very uh, chaotic homes. But people who grew up like that, it doesn't take away the longing for home. In some way, it makes it stronger because you long for that kind of security and peace that you never actually had. And it kind of makes you, you want to have that and, and, and vow to kind of create that in your new, new family that, that you're starting. Something else I've realized about home, though, if we're lucky enough to actually get to the place that we're longing for, like, you know, Thanksgiving break comes and we get to go home, or summer camp ends and we go back home, or, you know, you get uh, leave from your military duties and you get to go back home. So you get the thing that you're longing for. Um, here's what I found happens. It's great for a while, but pretty soon you realize that there are frustrations, and annoying people, and, and uh, things that make you angry, things that upset you there as well, right? It's never quite as good as we dream that it's gonna be. The longing remains. And here's what I think that tells me, that when we feel homesick, it's not so much that physical place that we're longing for, it's something that home represents. It's something that home represents that's actually a deeper thing. Tim Keller wrote this, Home is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feelings that surround it reveal some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits us and suits us where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. I love that first sentence. Love is a powerful but elusive concept. It's powerful because all of us know those strong emotions about kind of craving home, but it's elusive because it always seems beyond our, our grasp. I think that's maybe what Bono the singer meant from you too when he said, you know, I still haven't found what, what I'm looking for. This thing that I crave, it always seems a little bit out of reach. 
That's what makes the words of Jesus so meaningful here. The disciples were feeling very homeless at this time, uprooted, vulnerable, like there was no safe place for them to go. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, there is a place where you will be safe and loved and secure. That's a powerfully comforting promise. In my Father's house are many rooms, and one of those rooms, I'm getting ready to put your name on the door. And, and this is a home that when you're there, it's the one place that when you're there, you'll never wish that you were someplace else. It's the place that every home in this world has been imperfectly pointing to. I'm going to prepare that place for you. No wonder we love this passage, right? Because in one way or another, all of us know what it's like to feel the chaos and the homelessness that the disciples felt. And then we hear the words of Jesus, don't let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. I'm gonna go there and prepare a place for you. Man, I mean, you can, you can read this at my funeral, right? John, Pastor John, make a note of that, my funeral. Great passage, amazing comfort. At the same time, though, this passage contains a challenging claim. So after Jesus makes that comforting promise, he says in verse 4, you know the way to this place where I'm going. And I feel like there was this embarrassing silence that fell over the room. And I'm so thankful for the courage of Thomas because he spoke up and said the thing everybody else was thinking. Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And the answer that Jesus gave is something that has challenged people and stretched people for the last 2,000 years. John 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see why that is so challenging and potentially offensive to, to people? I mean, the idea of this home sounds great, but the concept that there's only one way to get there sounds really narrow. And for a lot of people, that means that it sounds arrogant and exclusive and just really offensive. I can remember it was right around this time, uh, nine years ago, that my then 10-year-old daughter started complaining about pains in her, her abdomen. And so um, after about an hour or so of that, I brought her to the emergency room and they did an MRI on her and the doctor came out where we were waiting uh, in, in uh, the emergency room for the results and he said, um, this is a clear case of uh, appendicitis and we need, to, we need to operate immediately to get it out because otherwise it could burst and that could be a tragic situation. So can I tell you what I did not say to that doctor? <coughs> doctor, that is so narrow. <laughs> I think you're kind of arrogant. To, be, to say that this is the only way, I'm very offended right now and I'm going to leave and go home. I didn't say that. You know what I said? Thank you. Let's make this happen. And I held my daughter's hand and said, it's going to be okay. Um, obviously, you see the point. Sometimes truth, by its very nature, is specific and narrow and exclusive. That does not make it arrogant. And I know what some of you are thinking, because you think just like me. You're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, you can't make this analogy. Because you're talking about a medical thing, which is, which is provable and verifiable. That's one kind of, of knowledge. You can't use that same thinking when it comes to spiritual things. It doesn't play by the same rules. And I hear you, and, and, I, and in some ways I agree with that objection, but not totally. I think that we can use this analogy, and here's why. 
The man who made that statement in the emergency room was a doctor, which means that he had wisdom and experience that I did not have. So when he made that, that statement, when he walked out and he gave me the report, he was making that claim based on his credentials as a doctor. He was not being arrogant. Um, he was not being overly narrow. He was just speaking the truth. And when Jesus made that exclusive claim that he made, and let's face it, it was exclusive, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. He was basing that on his unique credentials. If you say to me, Pastor Dave, how can you say Jesus is the only way? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying Jesus said that. If anybody else said that, it would be crazy, right? It would be ridiculous. And I'm telling you, Jesus is not like anybody else. There is a uniqueness to him in the history of the world so that when he says things like this that really challenge us, it should at least make us sit up and pay attention and say, I gotta, I gotta at, least, at least think this through a little bit. So the point is, there are times in life when being narrow doesn't necessarily mean you're being arrogant. It all depends on the credentials of the person making that narrow claim, right? So the, the question becomes, so does Jesus have the credentials to say this kind of thing? Look at the next verse, verse 7, because he really starts getting into his credentials. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. This is one of those many places in the gospels where Jesus was claiming equality, uh, ontological, equality of essence with God himself. He wasn't just saying, I have a higher level of God consciousness than your average person. He was claiming equality with God, divinity for himself. Um, that's quite a claim, don't you think? If you're wondering why Jesus got himself killed, it wasn't because he taught people to be nice and forgive each other. The reason Jesus got himself nailed to the cross by a combination of civic and religious authorities was because he said things like this. So Jesus made claims for himself of divinity. Speaking of the cross, that's the other big reason that I'll talk about that Jesus had the credentials to make this radical claim. And I'd like us to think about it this way. Have you ever thought about that Jesus went to the cross so that you and I could have the home that we're longing for? Um, Remember when Jesus hung on the cross and the thing that he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this heartfelt cry that came out of Jesus' mouth from the cross because he was feeling something that he had never experienced before, which was disconnection from his father. See, the thing that disconnects people from their creator is sin. It's, it's our greed and our arrogance and our pride. That's what puts a barrier between us and God. So because of our sin, we kind of earned spiritual homelessness. We earned disconnection from God. But on the cross, Jesus did this amazing thing where he, he hung there and he took on himself all of our pride and our arrogance and our greed and all of our other sin. So at that moment in time, Jesus was experiencing the homelessness that sin causes in people's lives. And it was such a disorienting feeling for him. He cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the reason Jesus did that is so that you and I never have to. He experienced homelessness for us, being put out of the presence of God so that you and I could always have a spiritual home. 
And, th and as you think of all the other religious leaders, all the other political leaders, all the other people that we look to in life, none of them can make the claim that they gave up their life so that you could have the home that you long for. Only Jesus could make that claim. Um, that's a narrow thing to say. So let me ask you an honest question. When you hear him say things like that, is that, is that kind of offensive to you? Don't answer out loud. It might get awkward in here. But is that kind of, do you, do you wrestle with that? For a lot of people, this is what bothers them about the Christian faith. They feel like, okay, if there's a God, there must be a lot of different ways to get to him. There can't just be one way, right? And so when they hear Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father through me, they just, they just almost at a gut level, they tune that out. I get that. That's where I was for a while. I could not, I could not come to terms with this. But I discovered quickly I could not dismiss Jesus that easily that there was just something so compelling and so different and so powerful about him. And eventually I decided to stop resisting him. I decided that, that this doctor was truly speaking truth about my soul. So if you find yourself in, in a similar situation, I know that's just my story, your story might be, might be totally different, but if you find yourself wrestling with this, would you just ask yourself this morning, what if it's true? What if, just like that doctor was speaking, yes, a, a pretty exclusive, but a very true thing about my daughter's appendix, what if Jesus is the one that knows most what my soul is about and what I need and that he's speaking truth? Not because he's arrogant, but because he so loves us and he so wants us to know him. We've been saying every week that every time Jesus made these I am statements, he wasn't just posturing, he wasn't just you know, bringing attention to himself, it was never just an intellectual exercise. He was always calling people to personally believe in him. And at the very beginning of this passage, verse 1, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So when Jesus says these I am's, it's always an invitation to believe, which means to entrust your life to him, to, to put your confidence and your faith in him. And that leads to the final point, a life-changing belief. A life-changing belief. What would change, and test yourself against this, believer, what would change if we truly believed that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life? I would say, first of all, it changes the way that we feel toward God. Just change the way we feel toward God. Um, and let's back up and talk about people in general. Just this last week, there was a new Pew Research Center study that came out, and they said that 80% of Americans believe that there is some kind of a higher power. So, wow, it means 80% of us agree about God, right? Not exactly. Because if you ask people, well, what do you mean by that, about this higher power, you would get all kinds of different answers. So, in this teaching, Jesus is saying, look, if you want to know the truth about what this higher power is really like, I'm the one who can really get you there. Um, if you feel like God is this impersonal force in the universe, get to know me and you'll see that God is a very personal being that you can actually have a relationship with. If you have a sense of this higher power that he is this demanding judge, and that's what most defines him, get to know me and you will understand that God is actually a loving father. One of the great joys of my life is getting to be a dad. Uh, 
very imperfect father. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. But I think my kids know this, that if they do bad things, if that ever should happen, that I might be upset with them, I might be disappointed with them, I will never fire them. I'll never kick them out of my family. Their position is totally secure. And Jesus is saying here, if you want to know what God is really like, if you want to have that kind of confidence and that kind of security and that kind of comfort in your relationship with God, there's no way for you to get there. You can't get to know the Father like that except through me. So Jesus, this isn't just all about, hey, how do you get to heaven? This is how you get to a knowledge of God. Jesus says, the only way you can understand what God is really like, that's why I've come, get to know me, and then sure enough, you find that you know what the Father is like. So Jesus changes the way we think about God. Secondly, believing Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life changes the way we feel toward others, toward other people. And this is some, one of the things that, that bothers people. They say, look, if you follow a faith that claims to be the only way, it's going to make you look down on other people. It's going to make you judge other people, and you will become an arrogant person. Is that true? I would say it really depends on what that faith teaches. If that faith is based on a concept of moral achievement and moral superiority, then yes, it will make you arrogant. Do you remember in the Gospels who the main opponent of Jesus was? It was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a very elite religious sect that was built on moral achievement, moral superiority. They very much looked down their noses at people who were not at their level spiritually. So yes, if you embrace a system that is built on you are a better person if you have achieved more morally, then it will make you superior to others. But true Christianity is completely different from that, which is, by the way, why Jesus clashed with the Pharisees so much. Because our identity, our value, is not based on our moral goodness. It actually all begins when we realize how morally messed up we really are. That's the ticket into this. When we get that, there's no way that we can look down on anybody else. There's no basis for superiority. In fact, I would say the more you get that, the deeper you go in this faith, the more you walk with Jesus Christ, your heart actually, if it's working right, guys, the more you walk with Christ, your heart gets more softened, you get less judgmental, you become slower to notice the faults of, this is how it's supposed to work. You become slower to notice the faults of other people. You become quicker to notice and confess and admit your own faults. We follow a man who died <laughs> praying for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness with his final breath. And the more we walk with him, the more we will become people like that. It doesn't make us superior at all. It should make us more loving. And then finally, believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, who is preparing this perfect home for us, changes the way we feel, ready, toward earthly homes. Hmm. So we started by talking about this strong desire that all of us have for home, right? Universal human feeling, it's, it's captured in songs and poetry and, and in, in movies. We long for home. And because of that, when we find some kind of a home in this world, it's easy for us to hold on to that and go, this is it. This is the thing I've wanted. I got to hang on to this. The problem is life has this funny way of messing with those earthly homes. Your company transfers you, 
And all of a sudden, this house you thought you would retire in has a for sale sign stuck in the lawn. I guess that's not the home I was longing for. Or maybe you grew up in the town you love, in a home you love, surrounded by people who know you, and you go off to college not thinking anything about it, and then your parents decide, I think it's time to downsize. And they sell the house, and they move to another house, and you come back on Thanksgiving break to this foreign house with truck stops and Denny's all over it. And you say, where am I? Or you retire, right? And, and, and you, you spent your time living in this great home, and you say, and this is the house that I'm gonna grow old with my spouse, and then your spouse gets ill and passes away, and everybody realizes the thing that makes the most sense is to, work, is to move into a retirement community, and suddenly you're in this strange place you've never been in before, and you're like, man, where, where am I? Or you're pretty successful, and you finally realize everybody's dream of, of selling your house here and moving into your dream paradise house in Hawaii. Because after all, what could possibly go wrong in paradise, right? <laughs> and suddenly you find yourself checking your home insurance policy for volcano damage. Is it covered, you know, in, in the house? It happens in a million different ways, right? I can remember a few years ago when so many people were rocked in this area because it was, it was two years in a row and then another year skipped and the next year we had the big floods around here, right? back in 08, 09, 10, that area. And I can remember the chapel was going out and you know, we were volunteering and putting teams together and helping people to, to you know, rip out flood damage stuff. We were just going door to door and seeing if we could help. And I still remember this one guy that kind of represents the whole thing for me. We came to his house and he was just sitting at the end of his driveway in a lawn chair by himself, just kind of staring out into the street. And we came by and you could see his house was just submerged. The whole ground floor had like three feet of water in it, and so much of his stuff was destroyed. And, and talking to the guy, you could tell he was just like blank. Like this was it. This was everything for him, and now the flood had taken it away, and he was just devastated. The homes that we have on earth are very fragile and very temporary. Knowing that our true home awaits us helps us to hold these earthly places loosely. And to appreciate them, of course, right? This, this God's provision for us and to make them welcoming and, and cozy and, and make them places of beauty and warmth and all of those things. Um, but it helps us to hold them loosely. And the New Testament actually has a lot to say about this, this concept. Let me just show you one other place. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Man, what a wise thing to realize that, that the city, the homes, the places we have here um, don't endure. And so those difficult times when we lose a home or a flood hits our home or we have to relocate doesn't devastate us. Um, it just builds our anticipation for the real home that's coming. Last Tuesday, one of the guys in my men's group uh, told us a story about his, his dad. His dad was a, a German immigrant, came over as a young man and was just excited to build his fortune here in America. Uh, he got married. Uh, they had two kids. He wound up uh, earning his living uh, with his hands, using his hands in a mechanical kind of thing. Uh, bought a, uh, a humble home not too far from here. So his kids grew up and they moved out of the house and uh, some years later, dad's health took a turn for the worse and he began to realize that his time on earth was coming to a close. 
And my friend said, um, as he, he shared this last Tuesday morning, he said, it was so interesting to watch my dad during that final season of his life because he said, I would come into the house where my parents lived and I would walk into the, to the room where my dad was and I would see him sitting in a chair deep in prayer with his arms reached upwards. And he said it was so strange because my dad was not a charismatic, expressive, emotional man. He was, he was totally German. He was quiet, he was reserved, he was stoic. He said it took me a while to realize what was going on. And then he said, I started to put the pieces together. My dad, I realized, was a little bit disappointed with what he had accomplished in this life. I mean, he had a career, but it was a, it was a modest career. He had a home, but it was a very humble home. And he said during those final days of his life, he was, he was reckoning in his mind, he was realizing that, you know what, this is not the place where I'm going to find that thing that I've been longing for, that thing I came from, from Europe to find. My true home is somewhere else. And he said my dad in those final days actually sat there in prayer and physically reached toward his home like he just couldn't wait to get there. Man, I like that. Jesus said, my father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, a home. And the way to that home, it's not, a, it's not a religion, it's not a doctrine, it's a relationship with a person named Jesus. That's what he claimed about himself. That's who he says that he is. So who do you say that he is? Would you rise for our closing prayer? Join me in prayer. Father, as we allow ourselves to be confronted with the words of Jesus of Nazareth this morning, what a comfort to hear that there is a home being prepared for those who love you. Lord, I pray that we will take deep comfort in that today. And yet at the same time, Lord, how challenging to hear Jesus say, I am the way and no one comes to the Father through me. Lord, honestly, in our humanness, we wrestle with that. We wrestle with what that means for us, what that could mean to other people who, who don't believe. Lord, it's a difficult thing. And yet, Lord, I pray that today we would, we would not worry about other people's decisions so much as our own. What do we say about you? And I pray, Father, that not just by looking at, at information, but by responding to your call, by your, your drawing of our souls, Lord, that we'd have the wisdom just to come to you and to fall on our knees and say, my Lord and my God, I put my trust in you. Lord, I pray that even now as people on this, on this Mother's Day that maybe they didn't think we'd be talking about something like this, that Lord, if you're working in people's hearts, that even right now, Lord, some would say, this is my moment. And I say yes to the God of the universe, the one who's preparing a home for me. Lord, I pray that as believers, that we would, as we get to know Jesus Christ, that we would know who you are, Lord, a God of intimacy and personalness and, and security. I pray that this truth would make us so humble toward other people, Lord, understanding that our standing with you is all by grace and that that will soften us toward others. And Father, I pray that in these homes that most of us will be going to this afternoon that we love and that we appreciate, would you help us to hold those things a little more loosely, knowing, Lord, that the real thing, the best thing, the thing our hearts really crave is yet to come. Lord, thank you for your promise of a home. Today, Lord, would you help us to celebrate the mothers in our lives really well? 
Um, and as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that it would be your power, your strength that energizes everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, before you leave today, let me remind you, if you are a female, 18 years or older, we have a little gift for you on the way out, so make sure if you are a woman, 18 or over, you get one. Also, don't forget, professional photographer in the cafe, make sure you get your family photo. God bless you. <laughs>